Amen. Thank you, praise team. We appreciate that so much. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, good to have you in God's house today. We're glad that you're here to worship with us. And I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend and time with your family. I know I did. We just had a wonderful time getting together at the Thanksgiving holiday. I want you to take your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be jumping back into our series in the book of Mark. Let me mention a few things too, just uh, by way of announcement. First off, um, our church gave over $3,800 to uh, green, um, Salem Pregnancy to help out with supplies that uh, many of the moms need and also counseling and different services that are provided by Pregnancy Center. I just want to say thank you as your pastor. I appreciate your gifts toward that. We were the top third church in giving in Forsyth County to help out Salem Pregnancy, so thank you for doing that. I also want to mention, too, that uh, Brian Ottinger called me from Charlotte. He is one of the CEOs with Love Life, and uh, he told me that this year, with all of their Love Life campaigns, including ours, um, 5,000 babies were saved. Isn't that cool? They were saved from abortion, meaning that the mom and dad were at the abortion center scheduled to have an abortion, and they changed the sidewalk counselors through some other influence, like the uh, different options that they have to help people, and they chose life. And so I just think that is beautiful. Uh, let me mention, too, then tonight, um, I'm going to be doing a special message tonight. If you want to come, you're welcome to come. You don't have to. It's going to be at 530 and uh, it kind of, we've closed out our snack classes and we start up all our special events on Sunday night in December, but this is kind of an open night. So I decided to do a message tonight that I've been thinking about for some time. I wasn't sure I wanted to do it, but I'm going to do it. It's going to be on Israel and the Hamas war. And I'm going to do it with an eye to biblical prophecy. And there's a lot of things going out and being said and a lot of uh, just uh, misinformation, and so I would like to, I don't know how much you know and understand the history of Israel and just the conflicts that have gone on. I want to do a little of helping you understand that, but really, ultimately, where, where do they might fit in the biblical prophecy, and what does the Word of God say? I'm going to focus on Ezekiel 38 for that. Now, I'm starting a series on Revelation on Wednesday night, and so this is kind of a warm-up for me, and I just wanted to test the waters tonight. It's going to start at 530. We're going to be in E116 and 117 on the other side of the uh, commercial kitchen, and it's going to be about 45 minutes long. So if you want to come to that, we'd love to have you come to that tonight. All right, Mark 14. Stand with me now. We're going to read verses 41 through verse 52, and I'm going to start right in the middle of verse 41 as it pertains to the message today. Verse 41, Mark 14. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, and with him was a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, Judas, having immediately gone to him, said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would have against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. 
But this has taken place in order that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. You may be seated. Who said this? If you tell a lie big enough, loud enough, and for long enough, people will believe you. Who said that? You don't know who said that? If you tell a lie big enough, loud enough, and long enough, people will believe you. It was Hitler. Hitler said that. And in the process of time, he betrayed his entire nation, and he betrayed the world. Just tell a lie long enough. The betrayal of Judas is very similar to that. There's a common story that is well known, an Arab story, where the turtle wanted to get across the pond. And so as he's getting ready to get into the water to go across the pond, a, a scorpion came up to him and said, Hey, how about I crawl up on your back and you take me over to the pond? I'd like to get to the other side myself. And the turtle said, There's no way. You'll get out in the middle, you'll sting me, and then I will be dead and I will drown in the pond. The scorpion said, Why would I do that? I wouldn't do that to you. If we get out in the pond, if, if I stung you, you would die, and I would die too. Why would I kill myself? And the turtle thought about it and said, I guess you're right. Okay, you can hop on my back, and let's go. They got out to the middle of the pond, and the scorpion stung the turtle. And as he was going down into the water, he said, why did you do that to me? And the scorpion said, it's my nature. It's who I am. Anytime you find yourself in a place where you might be betrayed or you might betray someone else, understand this about Satan. He is not far away from you. Because he loves betrayal. It's his nature. It's who he is. And he looks to use you to betray others, to influence you. He can't possess you like he possessed Judas, but he would like to influence you to be a betrayer. There's nothing more painful than to betray someone. It's interesting to me that when you think about betrayal, it all happens from a kiss. There's a front. There's a pretending to be a family or to be a friend to someone. In actuality, inside of the person is animosity for you. They feel an animosity toward you because maybe you dis disappointed them, maybe you did something to hurt them, but they want to make you look bad, and they want to make you be destroyed, and they want to mess with your emotions. Just remember, if you get caught up in that kind of stuff, Satan's not far from you. The saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. I want to talk to you today about the four crucial characters at the betrayal and arrest of Jesus that challenge our daily journey to follow Christ. Four characters I want to look at in this story. This is how I kind of outlined it around these four characters. First off is Judas. Of course, that would be the first one I want to deal with, Judas. His name in Hebrew is Hudas. Hudas. Just, it's, a, it's a soft name, Hudas. The first of the 12 disciples to abandon Jesus was Judas. He enjoyed, he enjoyed three and a half years with Christ. 
He was called a familiar friend by Christ. A familiar friend. Can you imagine being in hell today and knowing you were a familiar friend to Jesus? Judas was that such person. He betrayed his teacher with a treacherous kiss. It is called in history and throughout history the kiss of death. The kiss of death. He called the temple guards. He called the Roman garrison. He called the Sanhedrin with the swords, the clubs, and the torches. He brought everybody to this event to capture Jesus. Ironically, this motley crew would come to arrest such a meek and mild man. Such a meek and mild man. Why do you come at night? Why do you come with clubs and torches like I'm some murderer, like I'm a criminal, like I've done something horrific? And yet that is exactly how they betrayed him. And yet he sat children on his lap. Judas chooses midnight to arrest Jesus. This is midnight. It's the midnight hour, if you will. Why would you do it at midnight? So the arrest would be under the cloak of darkness. Because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They betray in the dark. The children of darkness at midnight. It's like my mom used to say, nothing good happens after 10 o'clock at night. That definitely is true here. Jesus exposes their evil by saying to them. He exposes their evil. He says, oh, look at this in verse 49. He says, um, every day I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But this has taken place in order that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Jesus said, you had your chance. You could have taken me in the day. Did I ever fight you? Did I ever give you a problem? Why are you coming to me at night? He's exposing their evil and wicked mission and just making it clear to them. You know what you're doing. Jesus said, now whoever I kiss, seize him. Get him to the high priest, because I'm not going with you to the high priest. I just want to get in, get out, and get the money. And when I get in, get out, and get the money, i got to make sure you bring him there safely so I can get my money. Because that's all I want. I just want the money. And so, he says to him, notice this, this is, this is uh, to be well understood here. He says, got to find it. Uh, verse 45, after coming, Judas, having immediately gone to him, said, Rabbi, and kissed him. You see the word rabbi there? You see a little exclamation point? They don't have exclamation points in Greek. There's no exclamation points. We, we come up with exclamation points. So it's important you understand something here, and I want to try to explain, to it, explain it to you. Literally in the Greek, it says, Rabbi, Rabbi. Okay, now, you wouldn't understand Rabbi, Rabbi, but I want to explain it to you so that you understand what's going on here. Okay, you see the exclamation point, but really, literally, it's Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, to kiss someone in that day is a common sign of affection, but the thing that's so evil about it is honor uses the method. Honor was the method used for the evil and mission of Judas. This is not a peck on the cheek, okay? This word in the Greek is a strong word. Some translated over and over he kissed him so they wouldn't miss who the guy was. Uh, some translated a lavish kiss. But one thing we know for sure, there was a deep sense of affection by Judas being shown. Now, how do we know that? Because when you repeat a name, Rabbi, Rabbi, by the way, Judas never called him Lord. Rabbi, Rabbi, 
shows great affection when you repeat the title or the name. Let me just help you understand that through the Bible because it's always throughout the whole Bible, old and new. All right? And you don't want to miss this because it helps you understand what someone feels when they say it. Okay? They will come in the last day in Matthew chapter 7. They'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do wonderful, many wonderful things in your name? Didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Lord, Lord, incredible effect. People are going to come up with incredible affection on the last day of their judgment, and they're going to pull it out and say, we were so close to you. We loved you. Lord, Lord. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't even know your name. That's a scary thing. To get in the last day and have every ounce of affection you could have to try to get into heaven. And Jesus says, I don't even know your name. Incredible to think about the impact of that. And yet the affection they will have to try to get, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things? Or we knew you. And Jesus said, but I didn't know you. And maybe that's the real kicker when you get to heaven. Because I have a lot of people tell me, I'll say to them, are you saved? They'll say, yeah, I'm saved. Are, are, uh, do you know Jesus? Yes, I know Jesus. I've often thought I should flip that whole thing around and next time ask them, but does he know you? Does he know you? Because that's a far more important question than if you know him. Does he know you? And he says to them, I don't even know your name. So that, that's one that is a false affection that they try to show in the last day. Mount Moriah, uh, Abraham is about to kill his son, and God calls out of the heavens through the angel of the Lord, Abraham, Abraham, stop, hold the knife. Now I know you trust me. I never wanted to kill your son. I just wanted to see your heart. And now I know you're loyal to me. Abraham, Abraham, stop. God said it to Moses, Moses, Moses. He said it to Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. Elisha cries out when Elijah was taken up in the chariot. My father, my father. He's showing his great affection as Elijah is taken from Elisha. David screamed with affection when he found out Absalom was hung. And he said, Absalom, Absalom. Oh, I would have died for you, son. You can feel the affection of a father for his son whose life was taken. Absalom, Absalom, I would have died for you. I can almost hear Absalom from the grave saying to his dad, Dad, I really didn't need you to die for me. I really wish you would have just lived for me. But there's a great affection that these people feel anytime in the Scriptures you see this. Jesus says to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, it's great affection. What he's saying is, you can't be killing people anymore. I've got to get you off track. It's Saul, Saul, man, I love you. You've got to stop the killing. Simon, Simon. And on and on it goes throughout the Scriptures. Probably the most dramatic is on the cross when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's great affection there, but he can't call him his father because the father has turned his back on his own son. And when he turned his back on his own son, the, the, the son feels such emotion and such affection for the father, but all he can say is, my God, my God, 
every time used, every time a name is used in repetition, it's an intense and profound sense of personal affection. So what Judas is doing here when he says, Rabbi, Rabbi, what he's saying is, you're the only one I ever loved. You're the only one I ever served. You're the only one I ever, ever esteemed. Let me give you a kiss lavishly. A kiss of death. And it's an incredible cover-up. It's so good. You feel like a fool when you've been betrayed like that. Like, how did I ever miss this? How did I not see this? Jesus knew he could rest in it. This is what's supposed to happen. This is what I have to go through. I have to have a familiar friend betray me. And he was okay. Judas is a chilling reminder to us that in the light, he is a seeker of Jesus, but in the dark, he's a betrayer of Jesus. So I say this to you, measure your commitment to Christ by both the light and the dark moments of your life. Don't just think, well, these are all the good things I did for Jesus. Measure your whole life by the dark, dark and light moments of your life. That'll tell you far more about your walk with Christ. Judas is a trilling reminder again to us that he was outwardly attached to the church, but he turned against it when Jesus failed to meet his expectations. That's important to note. Jesus just didn't live up to what Judas' expectations. I want a Messiah. I want you taking over Rome. I want to be a ruler. He wasn't the Jesus that Judas wanted him to be. And it's dangerous when you do that. And that's, that's the thing you always got to think about in your own life. Is, is, is Jesus going to come through for me or not? And if he doesn't come through for me in the way I think he should, what should I do with that? Sometimes I can get so disappointed with God that sometimes I can wonder, should I not walk with him anymore? Some of you have lost loved ones, lost a husband or a wife recently. I know this for a fact. And as you lose that, I mean, all the expectations, like the, the emotions you have to go through for the lost God, why? God, what are you doing? God, why did you do this to me? I mean, all that. A true disciple will wrestle with that. I promise you that. A true disciple will wrestle with those kind of things. But the difference is a false disciple will say, you can't let me go through that. I won't let you go through that with me. You can't let that happen to me. I'm not going to do that. I won't experience that. I won't go through that. That's what a false disciple will say. A true disciple, they'll struggle, but they'll keep following. That's, that's the difference. And Jesus says, you can't be my disciple if you won't follow me. And Judas basically said, I'm not one of them. I'm not one of them. It's an incredible, chilling reminder. It's possible to participate and serve him and not be one of his disciples. That, that terrifies me to go my whole life and to feel like I served Jesus Christ and then I would go to hell. I mean, just the thought of that just so bothers me emotionally and psychologically that I think to myself, the last thing I want to do is spend my life doing this and not go to heaven, okay? So I want to make sure I'm real in my own heart, just like I want you to be real. Because we all have dark moments and we all have light moments that we've got to look at both when we evaluate where we're headed. Okay, it's by the pure grace of God that we all get in. But there is some things that can help us along the way to feel that assurance. All right, number two, let's go to the second character, Peter. We know this is Peter in verse 47. 
uh, because we know it from other passages, but it says, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, Peter said back in verse 29, he said, I'll never fall away. All the other disciples may fall away, but I won't. In verse 31, he said, if I have to die for you, I will not deny you. Okay, Peter thinks at this moment in time, this is his chance to shine. He's thinking to himself, now I know it's Judas. I know Judas is one of the disciples who's going to betray Jesus Christ. So what I'll do is I'll step up to the plate, I'll pull out my sword, and I'll, I'll, I'll attack the slave of the high priest. The slave of the high priest. That's what it says in the passage there. Now, why does he want to attack the slave of the high priest? Well, first of all, the high priest isn't there, Caiaphas. He didn't come to this midnight little rendezvous, okay? Because he doesn't go to the dark things. He stays out in the light. He's the good guy out in the light. So he sends one of his slaves, Malchus, we know from other passages is his name, and he is a slave to the high priest. Now, here's the deal, and I want you to understand this. This slave concept in the book of Mark, I didn't bring this out much, but I'm going to bring it out now, okay? Mark points this out over and over and over. You're one of two kinds of slaves. You are either a slave to Jesus Christ or you are a slave to Satan. And so when he uses the word slave there, he's not talking about some low-life servant. He's talking about his loyalty is to Caiaphas. And he's going to betray Jesus because Caiaphas, who is loyal to Satan, is going to be used by Satan to destroy Jesus. And so Malchus is all in. You want me to go and run the show? Caiaphas, so you understand this, okay, is not just a slave. He is also the prefect of Caiaphas. He is the assistant high priest. He is assistant priest to the high priest. He's the, he's the main one running the show here. Malchus, this, this slave, is running the show for the whole crew with all the Roman guards, all the Roman authorities here, all of the religious authorities here. He is running the midnight show. So Peter says, I'll kill him first. I'll kill him first. If I kill the leader, man, I'll prove to Jesus I'm very loyal to him and I'm going to stand up for Jesus all the way to the end. He's got all this zeal, but it's, it's misguided. So he takes out his Machaira sword in the Greek. It's just like an 18-inch, a little short sword, like a, a pirate scabbard forever. Arr, you know, it's like a pirate scabbard. You pull it out, and then he says, I'll just kill Malchus. And so he goes to slice at Malchus, and when he does, he misses hitting him and hits, cuts off his ear. Slices off his ear. It's, it's incredible. I, I like what one writer says about this. Peter was either so good or so bad with his sword abilities. Either he was so good he could just take off an ear, or he was so bad he could miss a whole head. <laughs> I love that. Arrgh, you know, he just, oh, I could just see him like a pirate there trying to get him, okay? Now, Kuravilla, in his commentary on Mark, points out the underlying message. Maybe you haven't heard this, but I want you to understand this, so when you read your Bible, you'll get what's going on here. What's the big deal about the ear? The Bible says, in the Old Testament, that if you maim a person's ear... You cannot serve as a priest in the temple. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 17. So what, what, what the writer really is doing is saying, this priest, when he got his ear maimed, he disqualified himself from being able to be a priest anymore. 
it's almost as, it's a powerful statement by Jesus. It's like Jesus is saying, you, Malchus, and the one you represent, Caiaphas, you are gravely unworthy to stand as the mediator between God and man. And by coming to destroy the holy anointed one, I disqualify you from further exercising your high office. That's what's going on behind the scenes with all of this. You're out. You cannot represent and be a mediator between God and man. And then he tells Peter to put up his sword. Now, what's the application here for us? We all need to understand how quickly we tend to reach for our wrong weapons when we fight spiritual battles. We go for wrong weapons. We go for the weapons of the world. Somebody attacks you, you attack them back. Somebody gets snippy with you, you get snippy back. Somebody says something to you, you say something back. And this happens in marriages, this happens in relationships. And what happens is we use the weapons of the world to fight with you. What are you getting so aggravated with me for? And then you get aggravated back. That's a weapon of the world. It's a work of a flesh. And so we, we all have these. They just come to us so naturally because our flesh is still pretty operative in our life. And so... Peter was doing the same thing. He was trying to wage a war, a spiritual war, with, with physical weapons. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, Peter. Put up your sword. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal to the pulling down of strongholds, but they are mighty through God. What are the mighty ones through God? Preaching of the word, prayer. I talked about praise last week. In the word of God, lifting up God, praying to God, all these things, the leading of the Holy Spirit, that's, that's how you turn the world upside down. As crazy as that sounds, that's how you do it. In any generation that, that refuses to use those weapons, the God's weapons, the spiritual weapons, and uses the inferior weapons of the world, will never accomplish God's purposes in this world. You'll never accomplish it in your marriage. You'll never accomplish it in your friendships. You'll never accomplish it with people because you get so caught up in using physical, fleshly weapons that have no power. You may put somebody in their place. You may just be a person who likes to speak the truth to everybody, but you didn't do it in love. You did it because you wanted your truth out there. See, those, those, those fleshly weapons are so easy to get caught up in. Look at, all, look at all the weapons that Judas used. The very first thing is he got a Roman garrison to come in the night. So he got the Roman government involved. Then he got religious authority involved. He got Caiaphas involved. And then he came with military might. Do you know what? Those are the three greatest weapons the world has to fight their battles. Military, political, and religious. That's all the world got to fight its battles. That's how they've tried to control the world through time. Military, politics, and religious. Think about that. That's what Judas brought to this table. Those are earthly, carnal weapons that will never win the ultimate battles. And the church has suckered into those politically, religiously, and even if you look through our history, militarily too. We have tried to force the agenda. You can't force the agenda. And I just share that with you because those are inferior weapons and the church has tried all of them. Now I'm just going to give you my opinion here, okay? It's just my opinion. That's why I have no interest in politics. 
Will I try to put a Christian man with moral values or a Christian woman with values into politics? Yes, yes, I'll, I'll be there. But ultimately, my true interests aren't there. Because I've learned through my life, politics and government is a game of compromise. It's a game of compromise. It can never really pull down carnal strongholds. Okay? Now, am I not going to work to see politicians that are Christians in office? Yes, 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 I'm going to support that and, and even promote that. But ultimately, I know the real battles are not won that way. You might get a little compromise. You might get some things here that we're, we're, we're happy to see happen in government. But ultimately, it is really going to be bringing them down through the preaching of the Word of God, a holy life, prayer, praise, and the things that God has put His hand on. That's... That's my personal opinion, and I feel like that is the way I see it on that. Okay, that, that was some application for Peter. Let me go on. Now we go to Mark and the disciples. Mark and the disciples. All right, this is in verses 50 to 52, and in this with Mark, Jesus knew that this scripture being fulfilled that Judas had to betray Jesus, he knew it would set in motion a whole bunch of things where his disciples would get scared and they would all run. Strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And Jesus said, what you've done, Judas, is now fulfilled where my disciples will now all abandon me. They will all abandon me because Jesus had to go to the cross alone. He had to go to the cross alone. And then there were none. And then there were none. Jesus predicted their abandonment of him. And out of the darkness they run. They collapse like a house of cards. Oh, Jesus, we'll never betray you. Oh, Jesus, we'll never deny you. And like a house of cards, they fall, just like that. The heroes of the faith, they turned tail and fled into the darkness, and Jesus is left alone. And then the Bible says, a certain young man, <laughs> a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Now what's up with this? That is so strange to be in the Bible there. And I have studied this and studied this and read this and read this. And uh, it's just a strange little statement here that this, this young man, we don't even know who he is, but he gets his clothes ripped off. He's got nothing on as an undergarment. He runs away naked into the darkness. So I want to explain that to you, okay? He symbolizes all of the disciples. This is incredible to think about. He symbolizes all of the disciples. He left his outer cloak. He fled naked. Now, there's a few things we know about him that I want to just share with you, okay? Because I think we could identify this. First of all, he had a linen tunic. Now, if you had a linen tunic in those days, you were rich. You were wealthy. Because they're very expensive to own, Okay? Not only that, but if you don't put on your undergarments and you just throw over a robe, all right? Some people do that around the house, right? They just throw over a robe. It's more comfortable to them to do that. But if you're doing it in this situation, that means you dressed in haste because you threw a robe over your body and you went out into the late hours with no undergarment on, thinking nothing's going to happen tonight, you just wanted to follow the situation. And this is what happened. This young man follows the situation, and uh, he doesn't have anything on underneath. Third thing we know about him is he lived in Jerusalem near the garden. 
He lived in Jerusalem near the garden. Why is he an unnamed person is the question. All right, I'm going to tell you why, okay? Because it's Mark himself. It's Mark himself. He is an eyewitness to this event. He is an eyewitness to this event. This is incredible to think about. He was from a wealthy family. He actually had a priestly caste family. Priests were in his history. And his parents, some even suggest, may have been the one who gave the upper room to Jesus because how else would he know things are going down in the garden? So, the eyewitness Mark sees this whole event go down and he goes out to it with only an outer robe on thinking, I'm just going to check out what's going to happen then I'm going back home. Now, I don't know if this is a word, but I'm going to make it up, okay? It's Hitchcockian. It's Hitchcockian, okay? That's what I want you to see here. This is incredible writing. It, you know where Hitchcock always shows up in his movies? Or who's the other guy? Spike Lee? No, not Spike Lee. Who's the guy who shows up in Marvel? Stanley, that's it, yeah, I get them all mixed up, okay. Stanley does the same thing. You know how he always shows up in his movies, in the Marvel movies? I love, I love to see that stuff, and I, I used to watch Hitchcock, Hitchcock just to see him show up, and he shows up in his own movies, and he doesn't give his identity. There's just this guy, oh, there's Hitchcock in the movie, all right? So they seize him, but, he, but he's just got an outer garment on, and he starts wiggling around like a fish in somebody's hand, and he starts wiggling, and, and he tears the garment. He's able to get himself free, and he's kind of twi- The word really is a word to twist around. He twists around. He gets up. He's got no clothes on now, and he runs out into the darkness like everybody else. Crazy. It's just crazy to think about this, okay? So he left his garments. He's naked, and he streaks into the darkness. Now, I've never had that happen to me where I've actually gotten naked out in the darkness in the woods somewhere. And, and, you know, the closest I came is when my wife wouldn't let me in the house because I had worked on a pig farm all day. And when she smelled me coming in, she locked the doors of the house and I couldn't get in. And she made me take all my clothes off, except my underwear, thankfully, and she let me in with just my underwear. That was the most embarrassing day of my life. I just thought I'd share that so you can rag my wife about that. Okay, but, but anyways, what is going on here? They're streaking. I hope none of you have ever streaked, but he streaks into the darkness. Okay, what's going on? Nakedness in the Bible is a picture of shame and humiliation. All of the disciples have shamed and humiliated Jesus. They've left him in his needy hour. It pictures how all the disciples acted on that night. We will never deny you or leave you, Lord. Wait, what a minute. What about these torches? And what about all these soldiers? And everybody's come to get us. And they could kill us. And, and oh, oh my goodness, well, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And it pictures their fear of man, which sometimes you get afraid of man. It pictures their fear of death at this great hour that Jesus is under. It pictures their shame and their nakedness. And just as Adam ran from God when he knew he was naked, so they run from the fear of man and death. It's amazing just how it's all put together in the Word of God. The linen cloth of Mark contrasts the linen cloth of Jesus. Dramatically, dramatically. The difference is Jesus used the linen cloth to be obedient. Mark used the linen cloth to run in disobedience. 
exactly. What do you mean? Tell me a little more about that, okay? Jesus willingly submitted, submitted to his arrest and death. He went willingly to the cross. And they stripped him of his linen garment. They hung him naked, and he was crucified, but he was faithful. He was faithful. The young man, Mark, literally leaves everything not to follow Jesus. Not to follow Jesus but to escape arrest, to escape death. Mark symbolizes the total abandonment of Jesus by all of the disciples. Now, understand this. The disciples left everything for Jesus when they started out. And maybe you've left some things. They left their nets. They left their families to follow Jesus. Now they leave everything to get away from Jesus. What would it take you to leave something to get away from Jesus. It's worth thinking about. It left everything to get away from Jesus. It is a great shame and mar on their life, pictured in the shame of nudity. You contrast that with the final character, Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the faithful one who is ready to drink the cup of wrath. He is willing to be naked in obedience to Jesus Christ. He steps forward to do God's will. He is ready to do God's will. He proceeds not as a helpless victim in the hands of dark forces, but he is a champion. He is a strong man going into the jaws of death to satisfy the wrath of God. And yet he does it with joy. It says, who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, and he despised the shame, and he's now set down at the right-hand throne of God. That's just an amazing verse to me. How could you see any of this as joy? Because he experienced in all of his pain, in all of his suffering, and the extreme aloneness of his life, he was able to experienced the joy that he pleased the Father. And in pleasing the Father, that motivated him to do all of this. My dad's thrilled with me, and I'm going through with the whole thing. So he, he had a joy to please the Father. Don't, don't pay Jesus as trapped by circumstances that he can't help. I'm telling you, he moved purposefully, he moved voluntarily, and he moved as a substitutionary sacrifice because he's the only one who can die for another sin. Christ's death is necessary, it's voluntary, and it's substitutionary. And he's the only one who can do it. He goes willingly to the cross. And on the cross, Christ bears the Father's wrath. Yet at the same time, Christ expresses the Father's love. That's an amazing thought right there in and of itself. On the cross, the Father pours out both his wrath and yet at the same time expresses his love through the Son at the same time. What an ambivalence. Love and hatred, love and wrath at the same time. But he doesn't pour his wrath out on us. He pours it out on his Son and then he allows his Son to express the love he feels for the world. It's an incredible, an incredible way to make this all happen. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? 
The Father's love and the Father's wrath meets at the cross through His Son. Through His Son. He gave Himself. This is not a dreadful thing happening to a nice guy. This is why He came to this hour. This is why He came. He had to go through all of this. Absolute rejection. Absolute aloneness. Even from His own Father. He had to go alone because that's a picture of what sin looks like when you get it in your life. You feel separated and alone. And when you sin, you know that experience because the first thing you want to do is hide. And so Jesus comes to this hour and he says, shall I not drink the cup of wrath? He bears the judgment we deserve and he gives to us the opportunity to be forgiven. Why do we need to be forgiven? Because we're naked. We're ashamed. We're aware of our sinfulness. And Jesus says the only way you're ever going to make it is you have to be clothed with my righteousness. You have to be clothed with my righteousness because your righteousness is as filthy rags. The best you can do is a stench in my nostrils. You can't earn your way there. You can't just keep hiding with your sin. You've got to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ or you will go to your eternity naked and ashamed. That's why it's so central to the whole word of God. He goes as the Lamb of God to his death in complete control of all the events. Now I'll say this and I'm done. It is not enough to grasp this intellectually. You may have listened and said, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's good stuff. It is not enough to grasp it intellectually. You must embrace it personally. You must embrace it personally. You must come to trust this with your soul, that this is your only hope in Jesus Christ. I must be clothed in his righteousness because I'm naked and ashamed. How do I know I'm naked and ashamed? Because every time I sin, I want to hide. I don't want anybody to know the real truth about me. I want to hide. I want to cover it up. I want to put on some clothes. I want to find some way to get in the dark. But I don't want anybody to see what's really going on in my soul. But Jesus rips it back and says, you're naked, son. You're naked, young lady. But I want to clothe you in my righteousness. But you must accept what I did for you. I was your substitute. I was your payment. I put myself on the cross for you because it pleased the Father. And if you trust that with your very soul, he says, I'll save you. I'll save you. It's, it's just almost beyond anything we can imagine. If you accept that, rest in it, you can be saved. That's why he came, to save sinners. Let's pray. Praise team's going to come and sing for us here in just a moment. Just with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, I want to just ask you in this moment of time, as I'm sitting here in this room, I first feel compelled in my own heart to know that you may be sitting there and saying, I need Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm not saved, and I need to be clothed in His righteousness. I need that upon my heart, my life. I need to accept Him as my Lord. And I've not done that, but I want to do that right now, Pastor Rob. Would you lift up your hand and say, that's me.
Just lift it right up so I can see it. See, that's me. I need, yes. Is there another? I, I need the righteousness. I need to be clothed in his righteousness because, man, I can feel myself hiding. Anyone else? Just lift it up. You see that. Put it back down. Okay, I don't see any hands. That one hand that went up, just simple prayer. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's your heart right now. But you're doing this personally before God. God, my sin deserves judgment. You said in your word you died for me. I accept it. It's my only hope for my eternity. Lord, save me. And help me to be the person you want me to be. Now I just want to ask for you who know Christ as your Savior in this moment of time. All these characters at one time or another are us. Are you Judas? Are you one way in the light, but another way in the dark? Measure all of your moments, your walk with God. Are you Peter? Are you trying to fight with the wrong weapons at home? You get irritated, you snap back. You got the wrong weapons. I want you to fight with the right weapons. Like the disciples in Mark, you just got to get out of here. You got to get to the darkness. You got some things you're ashamed of. You don't want anybody to know. You'll probably carry them to your grave. But you want to be free of them. You want to be free. I think that's what Jesus offers. It's the only way I know you can set yourself free. Just own it, confess it. Put it at his feet and say, forgive me. And help me to be the person I need to be. I don't know where Jesus is talking to you. I don't know where the Spirit of God is speaking, but this is some great stuff to think about in your life. Father, I pray you take it now. I pray you put it upon each of those that have listened and have let the Spirit of God speak to them. And I pray you'd be honored in it, God. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team is going to sing. If there's a need or something in your heart you want to bring to the altar this morning, you come while we sing this morning.